I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Romans chapter 1. As you leave today, don't rush out now and get them. But if you did not get the uh, two inserts uh, for today's message, I hope you'll stop by the round tables and pick up those. Of course, the sermon notes from the message uh, that you can follow along on the PowerPoint. And then also there's another insert this morning uh, having to do with what we celebrate this coming Tuesday. What is Tuesday? Reformation Day. Thank you. Don't, don't, don't say Halloween. It's Reformation Day. And, and how many years now? What, what's this year the celebration of? 500 years. The Protestant Reformation. I'm going to do something this morning. The message is going to be a little different, okay? I normally try to get into the text pretty quick. We're going to be 15 minutes probably get, getting into the actual text, the actual message on the text this morning. I want to set the table by going over a lot of history. Why do we have the Protestant church? What's the Protestant Reformation all about? You know, we talk about Martin Luther and John Calvin and Eric Zwingli and John Wycliffe and John Huss and all these figures. What exactly do they mean to us? And why do we celebrate their lives and their Christian commitment? Uh, I'm going to try to help you understand that this morning, okay? And so a little more historical groundwork and perspective in the message that I would normally do. Uh, but anyway, pick up these inserts before you uh, walk out uh, today. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We'll be back in Colossians next week, but why am I preaching on Romans 1 this morning? Why are we highlighting verses 16 and 17? It's because this is the text that the Holy Spirit used in Martin Luther's life to bring about his salvation and the radical change in his life. He was a monk, he was a priest, he was a pastor, but he was lost. And one day God used his study of this... Oh, by the way, he was also a professor in theology... And it was through preparing for his theology class and his exposition of Romans that God used this text we're going to look at today to bring about his new birth. And that fanned the flame, set off the fire of the Reformation. That's why we're looking at this particular text this morning. Now, let's back up to verse 8 to see verses 16 and 17 in context. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. 
I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written... The righteous shall live by faith. Today's message, post-tenebrous lux. Now, you ought to know what that title is because I've used it before. It's a theme of the Reformation. What's it mean? After darkness, light. After darkness, light. Father, we thank you for the sacrifices of the men and women who laid it all on the line to serve you. Lord, today we recognize that we stand upon the shoulders of many who have gone before us, who have paid a huge price. Lord, may we examine our own lives Are we denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following after you? Lord, we thank you for this text of Scripture. And we know that you used it to bring about the conversion of Martin Luther. And God, I pray that you might be pleased to use it this morning to bring about someone else's conversion. Somebody here who is still in darkness. That you might bring about light in their soul. The new birth. That today that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Folks, it is certainly no exaggeration at all to say that the Protestant Reformation has influenced Everything about Western culture. Why is it that this morning you sit in a Baptist church with the Bible on your lap in a language that you understand instead of a traditional Roman Catholic church which if you go back far enough that you would know that their services were conducted in Latin, though no one knew Latin and no one spoke Latin anymore. And yet their services were in Latin. There's an old song that used to be popular that said, don't know much about history, don't know much about geography. You remember that song? Sure you do. Tragically, it says something about the average Christian today when it comes to knowing about our larger Christian family. Had it not been for the Protestant Reformation, church as you know it today would be very different. I fear that many of us do not know the debt of gratitude that we owe to men like John Wycliffe, John Huss, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox. Giants, and we stand on their shoulders today. The church of the Middle Ages, often referred to as the Dark Ages, was shrouded in spiritual darkness. 
the scripture was inaccessible to the common people because it was only available in Latin. Again, it was a dead language at that time. People went to church, but they had no earthly idea whatsoever what was being said or preached. And consequently, they had to rely upon what they were told by the pope or the cardinal or the bishop or the priest. The people were told that heaven could be gained through buying indulgences and praying to saints. Bishop positions over entire areas were up for sale to the priest who was the highest bidder. Immorality was rampant among the clergy. Some of the bishops even encouraged the priest to have a concubine which was forbidden by church law. But the bishops told the priest that if the priest would simply pay an annual tax or fee to the church for having a concubine, then the bishop would look the other way. Luther claimed that there were cardinals in the church who were considered as being living saints because they confined their sexual activity to being with adult women. And it said that some of the convents in and around Rome that housed the nuns were often little more than brothels. Now bear with me a few moments as we talk about the beginning of the Reformation. We'll get around to our scripture uh, this morning as I indicated. But I want you to understand the world and the culture of the church into which the reformers like Martin Luther arrived in. Let's travel back though first of all about 175, about 150, 175 years before Martin Luther and let's meet a man by the name of John Wycliffe. Now John Wycliffe had a deep burden on his heart and the burden on Wycliffe's heart was that the common man did not have a copy of the word of God in his or her language. They didn't have a Bible in their language that they could take home in the privacy of their home and of course in the church services and sit there and read and understand. And so John Wycliffe felt the call to change that. He was going to translate the Bible into the language of the common man. Wycliffe said of the priests of his day, they run fast over land and sea in great peril of body and soul to secure rich benefits, but they will not go a mile to preach the gospel, though men are running to hell for a lack of the knowledge of God. And so again, Wycliffe took on the task of translating the Bible out of Latin and into the language of the people. Now you would have thought that for such a monumental task as this, Wycliffe would have been highly esteemed, right? No. He was branded as being the devil himself. He was hated. He was despised. He was slandered. He was abused. 
They viewed him as a heretic and they stripped him of his professor of divinity degree that he had earned at Oxford University. Wycliffe penned the words in the flyleaf of the, of the New Testament in English, the first New Testament in English in 1382. Words later quoted by Abraham Lincoln, the Bible is translated and shall make possible a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Wycliffe was so hated for giving the the people a Bible in their own language that 30 years after he died, he died of a stroke. He suffered a stroke, a few days later died at age 64. 30 years later after his death, he was so despised by church authorities that on order of the Pope, they dug him up. They burned his bones and scattered the ashes. Imagine being so hated that even after you die, they do something like that in an act of public condemnation. They said he was not worthy of occupying a grave in a consecrated cemetery. And so that's why they did to him what they did. Well, if John Wycliffe was a criminal for giving the people the word of God in their language, it was John Huss who was viewed as a criminal simply for preaching the word of God in the language of the people from his pulpit. Instead of preaching in Latin, again a dead language that nobody knew anymore, he dared to ascend the pulpit in his church and exposit the scripture week in and week out in the language of the people so that they could understand the messages. And there had been such a famine of the word of God in the land that thousands flocked to hear the messages in their language. In fact, on some Sundays it said as many as 10,000 people would be in worship services. They were hungry for the word of God. As Huss preached, the sale of indulgences began to decline. Church authorities became concerned. They ordered Huss to recant his words and his practices and he refused so they arrested him. They threw him in jail and on July the 6th, 1415 at 5 p.m. in the afternoon they burned him alive at the stake. Now you know the phrase, your goose is cooked. Well, John Huss's name, Huss, means goose. And so when he was in prison about to be executed, he said, this goose is cooked. And that's where we get the phrase, if you're in trouble today, what might you say? My goose is cooked. That comes from John Huss. Well, let's fast forward in time. In the fall of 1515, Luther began lecturing on the book of Romans. He'd become a professor in theology at the University of of Wittenberg. And he ran into trouble almost immediately with Romans chapter 1. He'd just gotten started studying the book of Romans. And immediately he ran into a roadblock. He ran into trouble. And, And what troubled him was the contents of verse 17. You see, he had the 
medieval concept of, of an angry God who is simply out to destroy the sinner. In fact, in his previous years in the monastery, he would often freeze himself almost to death. He would enter into prolonged periods of fasting and he would do all sorts of other things in an attempt to try to appease God and win God's favor. He despair. He got to the point of despairing so that he would never be able to win God's favor that he said that he finally grew to a point that he absolutely hated God. He didn't love God, he hated God. Because he saw no chance of somebody like him being right in the eyes of God. Luther would enter into the confessional booth. And whereas the other priest would go into the booth, confess their sins to one of their colleagues. And they'd be in and out of the confessional booth maybe in a few moments. Luther would go in there and hour after hour after hour to the point that the one he was confessing to would leave just exasperated, just exhausted. But Luther would go in there and for hours confess every detail of his sins because his conscience about his sins was so strong. As he read Romans 1, 17, all he could think about was the righteousness of God and how he could never measure up. But as he studied this passage more and more and more, he came to the realization that Paul was not speaking about the person of God when he used the phrase, the righteousness of God. He wasn't thinking about that Paul wasn't intending the righteousness of God as, as being an attribute of God. Of course, it is an attribute of God, but he came to the conclusion that's not what Paul intended in this context. Rather than being an a- attribute of God used in the passive, it was righteousness of God used in the active. In other words, the righteousness that God imputes to the sinner who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And Luther said, when the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to that, he said this passage was like the gateway to heaven, the gateway to paradise being opened to him. And he said his, his, in his heart, he knew that he was born again. He was a new creation in Christ. That's the experience that is referred to as Luther's tower experience. If you ever read about his tower experience, it's when he was studying this passage and he came to the biblical understanding of the righteousness of God and he was saved. Well, once that happened, Luther quickly saw how wrong the medieval church was in their teaching and in their corruption. The church's understanding of grace was that the grace of God is extended to the sinner through the observance of the sacraments. It is a mechanical extension of grace whereby even if your heart is not right, simply by going through the mechanical action of receiving the sacraments like communion, for instance, the grace of God is extended to the individual. 
That's why it's so dangerous in the traditional Roman Catholic understanding to be excommunicated from the church. Because if you're excommunicated from the church, you can no longer take part in the sacraments. And if the grace of God is extended to you through the sacraments and you can't take part in the sacraments any longer, then then you are doomed. Luther came to see how the scriptures themselves were in conflict with the traditional church teaching. Now, second point that really bothered Luther had to do with authority. You see, to the Roman church, it wasn't simply the scripture that provided authority. But it was also the traditions of the church, the teachings of the church, the rulings of the Pope, and the teachings of the church councils. And the church would even place the rulings of the Pope above Scripture. In other words, the words of a Pope could negate or correct Scripture in some way. Rather than Scripture correcting us, the Pope's rulings took a higher authority than Scripture itself. And Luther came to see, no, 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 no. It is Scripture alone that is to be our authority. But what really was the last straw for Luther was the sale of indulgences. On February 24th, 1517, from the pulpit of his church in Wittenberg, Luther condemned indulgences because he charged they encouraged sinning and furthermore they kept people from truly knowing God. You see, according to the church, certain people, Christ, Mary the mother of Jesus and other saints lived in such a holy way that there was a treasury of merits built up in heaven like a savings account in heaven built up. And the savings account was for you and I to draw from. When you died because you had sinned in your life, you would go to purgatory and you would have to sin, uh, you would have to suffer rather until your sins had been completely paid for. Now I hope immediately you see a couple of problems with that. Jesus from the cross said what? It is finished. He paid completely for our sins and we can't add anything else to that. And also the Bible, nowhere does the Bible teach that there's a place called purgatory. But the church said through purchasing an indulgence, you're, you're drawing on this savings account or through viewing relics. They claim to have relics. For instance, they claim to have a twig off of the burning bush that Moses saw in the wilderness. And so by purchasing an indulgence or viewing a relic, you could lessen the time that you spend in purgatory. In fact, through paying to view relics or paying to purchase an indulgence, you could reduce your time in purgatory or the time of your loved ones by up to 1,902,202 years and 270 days. 
That's the time you could reduce off your, your years in purgatory. One million years. One million nine hundred two thousand two hundred two and and two hundred and seventy days. Simply by purchasing these indulgences. The church needed money. They were in process of building St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. They said, you know, we, we, they claim to have the corpses, the bones of the apostles Peter and Paul. Don't you want an appropriate resting place for the bones of Peter and Paul? Sure you do. And so we need to build this basilica and we'll house these bones in the basement of that. And you need to pay to help us. And by paying to help us in this building project, you can reduce your time in purgatory. Plus, on top of that, uh, Albert, uh, 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 a priest by the name of Albert, Albert of Brandenburg, he had gotten in over his head trying to purchase the bishopric of Mance. And he owed people money who'd loaned him money. And so indulgences began to be sold in Germany. And half of the money would go to help Albert buy his bishopric over that area. And then the other half would go to Rome to the building of St. Peter's Basilica. Now, Johann Tetzel enters into the picture. Johann Tetzel was a good salesman. He was a Dominican monk. And boy, he was a pro at getting people, getting the masses to buy indulgences. They said when he would ride into town, it would be like a circus. And he would park his entourage and his wagons and all. And he would, he would build a big bonfire in the center square of town and attract all these people. And then he would begin selling indulgences. And boy, he would preach these uh, heart-wrenching uh, sermons. And, and, and he would say things like, for example, let's say that, that we were in that time back then. David, you've lost your mother. Your mother has passed away. And she's suffering in purgatory. David, she's your, she's your poor, poor, precious mother. And she gave you birth. And she nurtured you. And she raised you. And she loved you. Doesn't it bother you that your poor, poor mother is suffering today in purgatory? Don't you need to buy her way out of purgatory? Sure you do. Such is what John Tetzel would do. And he promoted that little jingle. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Keep in mind, the average person didn't know any better. Why? Because again, they didn't have a copy of the Word of God in a language they could understand. And so they were prisoners essentially to whatever the popes, the cardinals, the bishops, and the priests told them. If this is what we're being told we must do to buy our way out of purgatory and the, and the lives of our loved ones out of purgatory and ever have any hope of getting into heaven, if this is what they're saying the Bible teaches, then we need to go along. We need to do it. Well, here's Martin Luther. He's a monk. 
He's a priest. He's a professor of theology. He's a pastor. He's been converted. He's a part of the church, but he knew that he could no longer remain silent in the face of what was being done. He knew he had to do something. And so he nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg 500 years ago on October 31st, 1517. Now by nailing his thesis there, Luther was inviting discussion and debate. At this point, Luther had no intention of separating from the church. He simply wanted to see the church as it was reformed. Now, of course, his 95 Thesis set off all, all kinds of debates within church leaders. And Luther was ordered to appear before councils and to recant. He refused to do so. And so in June of 1520, Pope Leo X issued a papal bull, which was an official papal ruling against Luther, excommunicating Luther from the church. And the papal bull against Luther began with these words Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has invaded your vineyard. Now a few years later at the Diet of Worms after being threatened with a fiery trial if he did not recant Luther said those famous words unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures then I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand I can do no other so help me God. Amen. Today I want you to understand we owe a tremendous debt to the magisterial reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. And the radical reformers like the Anabaptists. The the magisterial reformers wanted to stay in the church and just simply reform it. The radical reformers like the Anabaptists said no church is too far gone. We need to separate from it. We need to break away from it and start all over again. Anabaptist, the word Anabaptist was a word of derision. They were called Anabaptists, which meant rebaptizers because they had come to the conclusion that infant baptism meant nothing, that when a person came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, their first act of obedience was believer's baptism. And so with the term of derision, they were named Anabaptists, the rebaptizers, radical reformers. Again, both the magisterial reformers and the radical reformers, we owe so much to them. And we can sum up everything that they really wanted to do under the five solas. Sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone is to be our authority for faith and practice. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory that's what they wanted to see accomplished in the church the five solas as we call them today now as I mentioned to you we owe so much to these people so much 
Could you imagine still being part of a church tradition where you did not have the Bible in your language and where you came to church thinking you needed to buy your way into heaven? Can you imagine that? That's, what, that's the cloud the people constantly lived under. As I said, until, Roman, uh, until Martin Luther read this passage out of Romans 1. Now let's look at it this morning. First of all, I want you to see that believers today, like Paul, can have convictions about our ministry. Convictions about our ministry. The first conviction is that of gratitude. Look at what he begins saying in in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul is grateful for their faith and he wants to visit with them there in Rome so that both sides, he as well as as them, as they, can enjoy one another's company and be blessed and strengthened in their faith by one another. First of all, he mentions what he can add to their faith. You see, he knows he's been called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And as an apostle, he knows that God has called him and gifted him that he can teach the church and he can establish the church. He can establish believers in God's truth. So Paul knows that by coming to Rome, he's going to have something to add to them to be a blessing to them. But then as Paul thinks about this, he knows that they have something to add to him. That they can mutually bless one another's faith. And he's grateful for that opportunity that we have in the body of Christ. Folks, in your Christian life, Are you grateful? Do you practice a ministry marked by gratitude for others, the faith of others, knowing that as you get together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you can mutually bless one another? Or you come to church simply to get a blessing? I want to encourage you not to come to church simply to get a blessing, but to pray, God help me to be a blessing. Folks, if we will only open our eyes and pay attention, there are people all around us that are going through trials and tribulation and suffering. And they need our prayers. They need our encouragement. They need our support. And as we come to church, we have the opportunity of doing that for one another. And we ought to be grateful that we have a body of believers where we can practice that type of mutual encouragement and gratitude. I want to challenge you every week when you get up to come to church. Pray, God, help me. Give me the eyes to see. Open my eyes. Open my ears to see those around me that I can be a blessing to. By the way, you can do that every day in your life. As you get up to go to school or work, God, help me to be open to see those around me who need you. 
Be grateful for one another. Grateful that you have the opportunity with your brothers and sisters in Christ to strengthen one another and to bless one another. Another thing that characterized Paul's ministry, his convictions about what, he, what, what, what would happen as he came to them, was confidence. Look at verse 13. He says there in, in, in verse 13, I, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. Paul had a confidence. Paul was confident that as he went to Rome and he fellowshiped with the church there and he preached the gospel there, he was confident that there would be a harvest. Folks, I think of two of Jesus' parables, his parable of the soils and his parable of the mustard seed. Remember the parable of the soils? The farmer goes out to scatter his seed, which Jesus says is the word of God. As he scatters seed, some falls on the hard path. Some falls on shallow soil, grows grows up, but it's shallow, has no root, withers and dies. Some seed falls on soil that has uh, thorns and weeds that grow up and choke it out and it doesn't bear fruit but Jesus said some of the seed will fall on good soil and produce a fruit some 30 fold, some 60 fold, some 100 fold now folks a couple of lessons we can glean from that parable but one of the lessons we can glean from that parable is confidence in a harvest Jesus is giving his disciples confidence That as they sow the seed of the word of God, as they preach the gospel, they will not reach everybody, but they will reach some. As we sow the seed of the word of God, as you sit down and witness with people at work or school, you won't reach everybody, but you can have confidence that there will be some kind of harvest. And Paul knows that. As he comes to the Romans, he's confident that as he comes to them preaching the gospel, there is going to be some kind of harvest among them because that's simply what God does when we're faithful to preach his word. Same truth in the mustard seed. Starts out small but a big mustard plant. Jesus is telling his disciples we can have confidence in the power of the gospel. So Paul has a ministry characterized not only by gratitude but also by confidence. Thirdly, we can say he has a ministry characterized by an obligation. Look at verse 14. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul is under obligation. He views his life in ministry as a stewardship. And he says in in 2 Corinthians that a steward must be found faithful. Folks, to be saved, to be a child of God who is saved means that you and I have an obligation to pass the good news along. We have the Great Commission. We can't keep the best news in the world to ourselves. What do we owe, let me ask you a question, what do we owe lost people around us? We owe them a gospel witness. 
We have an obligation as a New Testament church whom Jesus said that we are to live as salt and light in the world. We have an obligation to sow the seed of the word of God and not keep the best news in the world to ourselves. Paul knew in the church of Rome there were people of all kinds But whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your language is, Paul speaks here the the wise, the foolish, so barbarians. Whatever your language is, the greatest need that you have is to be saved. We're all in the same mess. Apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. And those who have come to a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ have the responsibility, the obligation to tell others. Are you living with any sense of obligation, indebtedness in your life? A last quality of his ministry, eagerness. He says in verse 15, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. He knows what God has done in his life. You know, it's, it's at least possible, feasible at least, for some people they get in certain crowds and they shrink back. They might get in a crowd of super educated or rich or powerful or whatever and they might grow ashamed of the gospel. There would have been some thinking about going to Rome, the, the, the head of the, the center of the Roman Empire, the most important superpower back then. And here's Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And we get to the Roman Empire. And they might have been tempted to be ashamed and shrink back. Paul viewed it differently. He viewed it as an awesome opportunity. I'm not ashamed. I'm in the most powerful city in the world among some of the most powerful men in the world. And I get a chance in this place to share the gospel with them. Paul knew that there is a power greater than the Roman Empire. And that power is the power of God that is seen in the gospel. So folks, all of these qualities ought to be a part of our ministry and our lives as disciples of Christ too. Gratitude. Gratitude for what God has done and will do among us as a body when we minister to one another. Confidence, obligation, eagerness. All of these things ought to characterize your life and my life. Let's move on. Secondly, I want you to see that believers today, like Paul, should have convictions about the gospel. Read with me verse 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There is power in the gospel. You know, as I think of that, I, I, I think of a couple of cases in the New Testament. I think of the Ethiopian eunuch. He was in the cabinet 
uh, the queen of Ethiopia. He's gone in his chariot up to Jerusalem to be a part of one of the feasts. He's gotten a copy of the, the, of the scroll of Isaiah while he's there. He's on his way back and he's reading in that scroll of Isaiah. And he's on the desert road that leads down to Gaza. It's not even the popular road. It's the desert road and it's, it's noonday. It would have been hot. Not many people on the road. Philip is up in Samaria in the midst of a revival. And God tells Philip to go down on that desert road going to Gaza. Philip obeys. He goes down there. And who does he run into? He runs into the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What an opportunity. Philip asked the eunuch, do you know what you're reading? He says, no, how can I unless somebody tells me? He invites Philip to join him in the chariot. Philip, beginning with that text, preaches Jesus to him. And the Ethiopian eunuch is saved. Power in the gospel. Then Paul, go, on another occasion, Paul goes, missionary travels, first stop in Europe. Was it Philippi? They didn't have a Jewish synagogue in Philippi because there wasn't a big enough Jewish population so he goes down by the river and down by the river he finds a group of women praying and one of those women is a businesswoman by the name of Lydia and the Bible says as Paul shared the gospel with those ladies down by the river the Lord opened Lydia's heart and she believed power in the gospel one more the demoniac lived among the tombs. Nobody could do anything with him. They couldn't even keep him in chains. Jesus comes along, casts demons out of him. He comes to faith in Jesus. The townspeople see him seated there, clothed and in his right mind. He's been converted. The power of the gospel. Folks, as you and I share the good news of Jesus Christ... There is a power in that. God is at work. We're not just sharing the words of men, but the very word of the living God. And God takes that and God uses it. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Have you been transformed by the gospel? You see, saving faith is not simply about raising your hand at an invitation time or even coming forward. Now, now those can be important expressions of making your faith in Christ public. But has the Holy Spirit transformed your heart from the inside out? Are you a new creation in Christ? Have you been transformed by the power of the gospel? My fear is today we've had people who have joined the church, even been baptized, but they've never truly been saved. Have you been saved? Have you been transformed? What a shame on this Reformation Sunday when we talk about Martin Luther, a very religious man, a religious monk. Reading the same text of scripture that we're reading today. God used it to save Martin Luther. What a shame if we read this same text today. And you go out of here lost. That would be a tragedy. Man cannot save himself. 
Jesus said, you must be born again. The law cannot do that. Righteousness cannot be established by the law. Just keep reading in the book of Romans and you'll see that. The Jews tried to establish their own righteousness through the law. And because of that, Paul says, they did not come to the righteousness of God. They failed to come to the righteousness of God in trying to establish their own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 and following, Paul says it's through the preaching of the cross that God saves. The Jews see it as a stumbling block, the Greeks as foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Paul is saying the same thing right here in Romans 1. You say, why does he say to the Jew first? Because as he points out, we stand on the shoulders of of Jews in the Old Testament. As Paul said in Romans 9 and 10, to them belong the the covenants, the promises, the patriarchs, uh, the the commandments. We stand on their shoulders. But Paul said he grieved for them because everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to the Messiah in the New Testament. And they were blind to that. They didn't see that. And so Paul went to them first. He would go into a town and preach at a synagogue first because he wanted them to see in their rich history everything God was doing under the old covenant was pulling them forward for everything to be fulfilled in the new covenant with Jesus. That's why we ought to pray for Jews that they would come to Christ and be saved. Look at what he goes on to say here. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. Again, it's not, it's not an attribute of God, although God is righteous. But as Luther came to understand, it is the righteousness that God demands. And, and what this scripture is saying is the righteousness that God demands, God also offers to you as a free gift. God gives you what God demands. Now, folks, that's grace, isn't it? He demands righteousness. I can't supply that, and you can't. But Jesus Christ can. And he died there on the cross bearing your sin and your guilt and all the wrath of God. And God God imputes the righteousness of Christ to me and to you. And thereby we have a right standing before God. Amazing grace. And then as he points out here, quoting Habakkuk chapter 2. The righteousness shall live by, by faith, from faith to faith. Having begun in faith, we continue in faith. As Paul said to the Galatians... Having been, having been saved by faith, are you now trying to justify yourselves through the keeping of the law? How ridiculous. No. You see what, what the Bible is saying? is having begun in faith, having been saved through faith in what Christ has done, we continue all of our lives in that same faith. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. We are saved by faith and we're to live by faith day in and day out. 
Now, I want to close by talking to you heart to heart about some issues. First of all, on this Reformation Sunday, 500 years after the Protestant Reformation, do you understand the gospel? Statistically, according to Pew Research today, many people, even in the church, do not know what the gospel is. Most people, in study after study, survey after survey by multiple sources, most of those studies continue to show us that most people think that there is something they can do to add to their own salvation, to justify themselves before God. I want you to see today that God's righteousness is imputed to you through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gift from God. Receive that gift today. Come to Christ, trusting Him and Him alone if you've never done that. Secondly, I want you to see that the reformers fought what what they fought for. They fought for you to understand the Bible in your own language. Blood has been shed by godly men and women so that you can have a Bible that you understand. And yet, again, countless numbers in the church today never read it, never study it. As has been said of us, we are a biblically illiterate church today all across the land. That's not my words. Again, that's the words of these studies. The average man or woman in the church pew today does not know much about what their Bible teaches. Many evangelicals cannot even name all four Gospels. Fifty, according to Ed Stetzer in a July 2015 article reported in Christianity Today, 59% do not know that Jonah is a story in the Bible. Many think that the stories of Superman and Harry Potter are stories that are found in the Bible. 54% think that the Hunger Games, the Hunger Games is a story from the Bible. According to Lifeway Research, 45% believe that there are many ways to God. Folks, this is sad. I want to invite you this morning to recommit your life to a systematic reading and study of God's Word. The reformers like Martin Luther, like John Wycliffe and John Huss I've mentioned this morning. They saw how important it was for you to read the Bible. They knew that the Holy Spirit does something. When God's people prayerfully read God's Word, the Holy Spirit cuts on lights. And you see and you, and you understand. You're saved and then you grow as a Christian. The reformers saw that that happens when God's people get serious about his word. Get serious about his word.
If you don't know Christ, I want to pray with you. Others may want to make a commitment either at the altar or right there in your seat. God, it's late in the year, but at least between now and the end of the year, I can, I can at least study the New Testament. God, I want to get serious about studying my Bible. And as I do, will your Holy Spirit do what only He can do?